This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Jackie O and you're listening to Militantly Mixed. Yo, this is Rashani from the Single Simulcast. And when I'm not making you laugh or making up parody songs, I'm kicking back. Listening to Militantly Mixed. I would like to acknowledge that the Main Hustle Media podcasts are recorded on the traditional lands of the Karankawa, the Chumash, and the Tongva people, and I wish to pay my respects to the people of those nations, both past and present. <sighs> Six times a charm, y'all. We're going to try to get this happening. I'm going to lose my voice trying to do this intro. <laughs> Welcome to Militantly Mixed, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine Fury, the busiest mixed race, bi-gender, bisexual, polyamorous, atheist, comic book nerd, camp mom, and two-time Asian American Podcasters Association's Golden Crane award-winning podcaster in this podcasting game. Y'all, this is episode 158, and it is the sixth time I have attempted to do this intro because I don't know what the hell is going on in my neighborhood, but it has been cop car after cop car and siren after siren blaring up and down the side streets off of my street all for the last hour and a half. And the dog neighborhood dogs have been going off and all kinds of stuff. I kept trying to pause and let it pass, but then like a whole like minutes would go by and... I, then I kind of like lost my flow, so I felt like I had to start over. It's been it's been frustrating. It's been frustrating, <laughs> but it's been quiet for like the last ten minutes. So we're gonna the dogs aren't barking, no sirens. We're gonna try to get it. This is episode one fifty eight, and my guest today is actually someone that I know in Meat Space, someone that I've met at my comic book shop, Gulf Coast Cosmos, here in Austin, Texas. His name is Andre Andreas X. Uh, he is of Black American and Colombian heritage. He grew up here in the States, um, although he spent a lot of his summers in Colombia. He speaks Spanish, um, and he has to maneuver between the two cultures all the time, just like, you know, all of us do. Um, he is also a self-described revolutionary. And so the reason why we bond in the shop, besides being nerds, is that, you know, we're both very radically minded um, you know, I describe myself as a militant, obviously militantly mixed, and he describes himself as a revolutionary. Um, so we're both in that radical umbrella. Uh, he does a lot of poetry. He actually even produced a poetry book earlier last year and, um, and right now is working on a manga. So, uh, we get into it in the shop all the time. We always have stuff to talk about. And, uh, when I also found out that he was mixed, I was like, dope, you're going to be on my show. I tried to get him in December, but between my schedule and his schedule and life being crazy in December, we didn't get it going. We tried again in January and actually started recording, but we had an audio problem in the background that we couldn't get around. And so we were like, all right, we'll come back next week. Um, but it actually took another couple weeks until we were able to record. So what you're about to hear is our second attempt at recording, but our third attempt at scheduling um, to get our discussion going. One of the things that sound, that is weird for me that I didn't realize until I interviewed both Andre and Abdu from the previous episode 
is that because I don't know most of my guests in person and barely maybe know them online before they're a guest of the show, um, all the questions are to get new information out of them. But with Abdu and Andre, I know both of them. And so I had to remind myself throughout these conversations, be like, oh, yeah, the audience doesn't know anything about Andre. Let's ask this question. Let's ask this question. So I feel like I'm probably not as smooth in these meat space episodes <laughs> as I am with uh, with strangers. But um, it was just nice to have another way of interacting with a mixed person. And in this case, it just happens to be a mixed person that I know in meat space. So um, I'm going to put links in the show notes to all the stuff that that Andre does. Um, he has a podcast as well. And um, and, you know, we want to support those cousins out there. So um, I'm going to go ahead and do that. Um, you may notice or speaking of the shop or whatever segue that I just did, which is terrible. Um, you may have noticed I dropped two episodes this week. Yesterday, I dropped an episode, which is the audio of the video that my business partner from Gulf Coast Cosmos and I dropped on Sunday on our social media platforms, Gulf Coast Cosmos, in which I announced that I am leaving the shop. Um, so you can listen to that to get more of the information, um, because what I'm going to say here is not going to be sufficient in terms of, of my reasons behind it. Um, but basically, it's a three-prong reason. Um, one, I've been missing out on opportunities related to Main Hustle Media because I haven't, I haven't been holding up my part of the bargain when I wrote my contract with Gulf Coast Cosmos is that Gulf Coast Cosmos, I'm a 40% co-owner, meaning that most of my time is supposed to be dedicated to Main Hustle Media and only part of my time is supposed to be dedicated to Gulf Coast Cosmos, but I was not doing that. I was dedicating almost all of my time to Gulf Coast Cosmos and falling behind tremendously on the main hustle media side and even missing out on opportunities to travel or do other things because I was feeling guilt about not being dedicated enough to the shop when literally I baked it into my contract that 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 Gulf Coast Cosmos was secondary and main hustle media was my main hustle. So one of the reasons that I'm leaving has to do with opportunities that are becoming available to me that I haven't been able to say yes on um, because I've been dedicating myself 100% to the shop instead of what I'm supposed to do, which is 40%. The second reason is Gulf Coast Cosmos has achieved the ability to pay for itself, which is way earlier than we anticipated. So what I mean by that is that the business is able to pay for the business from what we earn in the shop. So we're able to pay for our inventory with what we earn from our customers. We're able to pay our part-timer and we're able to pay like utility bills and things like that, um, insurance and all that kind of stuff through the shop. What we can't do yet is pay ourselves. And we knew that was going to be the case when we started the business. But what we also didn't know when we started the business is that it was going to be a full-ass pandemic that was going to constantly make us pivot, pivot, pivot when we weren't expecting that. We did have an exit plan built in for me because we knew that there eventually it would be hard to pay for two owners off of one shop's salary. Uh, so in the future, and I mean like two to three years from now, the plan was that I would eventually split off. And that what that would look like is one of two things. Either Main Hustle Media was going to be my main focus for real, for real. And I was just going to be like, I can't do this comic book thing anymore. I'm out. Peace. The other version of that was going to be, 
I could sustain both by opening a West Coast Cosmos, say, if I wanted to go back to the West Coast or East Coast, wherever I wanted to move, because, you know, I'm a nomad and I'd be leaving, um, that in three to four years, I was going to move to a different place, open my own branch of the Cosmos and split that, make it a hybrid podcast studio slash comic book shop. And then that was going to be my future. So it was going to be one of those two things. Uh, but it was going to be two to three years from now because I just moved to Houston <laughs> and it was not in the plans that we would sustain within eight months and that I, it would no longer make sense for both of us to be at the shop um, if we wanted the shop to be successful. So it was always going to be the plan that I was going to leave eventually, but it was that I was going to leave under totally different circumstances that I'm actually leaving now. Um, so it's good problems. We did so well and have been able to sustain for the last four or five months that the only step left to go, well, not the only step, but a major step left to go is to be able to pay the owners. And we can't afford with the size of our shop. Our shop is like less than 400 square feet with the size of our shop. We would never be able to pay for two owners salaries. And we have to be realistic about that. Um, so it was, it was naturally going to be me. So that I'm not tripping on at all. Um, the difference is I had to decide to walk away and Byron asked me not to. And I had to say, I gotta go because the business won't sustain if I stay and main hustle media will fail if I stay. So I couldn't let those two things happen. That's full stop. That's, that's, those are the main things. The third thing, which I want to say isn't an equal third, but it's definitely part of the problem <laughs> is the pandemic because I am not comfortable being outside of my house right now. Like legitimately as much as I enjoy the experiences in the shop, especially when it's a little girl with Afro puffs and she's seen moon girl for the first time and moon girl has Afro puffs and she looks at the book and the book looks at her and they're looking at each other and she's like, that's me. And I'm like, that's you. That's what I love about being in the shop. What I don't love about being in the shop is people who aren't from our neighborhood that we exist in, who found out about us because of press and want to do their like monthly duty of buying black and coming into the shop, but then judging me for wearing a mask or judging me for telling them to wear a mask or judging me for telling them to use hand sanitizer because they're about to touch stuff that other people are going to touch. And them saying literally, oh, I didn't know this was going to be one of those places. That happens more than I would like. And I am not going to fucking justify myself when what I'm doing is in the interest of public health and safety. Like, that shit needs to stop across the board. You may have your political opinions about masking and the vaccination, but you have to understand that those are uninformed political and personal opinions. I am following what the science is saying. I am following what the doctors are advising. And I do not want to put either myself at risk or my customers at risk because someone decided that an orange dude that used to be president told them that masks were a lie. No. <laughs> and I don't understand the alignment. If you're a person who is trying to, quote unquote, be woke, 
and spend money in a black owned shop once a month. Like this is literally what people have told me in the shop. We try to spend money once a month in a black owned business. And then you make the co the owners of the place feel weird because they're saying mask up and wash your hands to protect the other people that are in this 400 square foot space, 400 square foot space. Nah. I'm exhausted. I am so tired of being outside. <laughs> so I'm not going to lie. That actually plays into my decision big time. I don't want to be outside unless it's on my own terms and there's nobody around. <laughs> so so I'm not going to lie. It is a part of the decision. But the, the real part, the real decision has to do with main hustle media was always supposed to be my priority. And I have let that slip uh, tremendously. And the business is doing well enough that it doesn't need me. And if I stay, it would just be a burden because we'd have to try to figure out how to pay two of us. And while my partner does make enough money to pay majority of our bills, there is a gap and I need to realistically bring home some money and I'm not. And um, emotionally that's difficult for me, but also like it got to a place where I wasn't going to be able to wait two more years um to make a salary that's just it uh but you can actually hear the emotional side and stuff like that if you listen to the episode that i dropped yesterday um but yeah so i'm not leaving on bad terms i'm just leaving on i'm a little sad i, I am a little sad because i i kind of hoped it would take another couple years um but you know I'm excited because the reason why I have to go is because of success. Like, what the fuck? That's amazing. Um, so that's what's been going on. That's why it's been kind of um, dicey the last month or so in terms of my releasing of episodes on time. I've been stressed out and overworked because I've been um, trying to figure out how to transition myself out of the shop and balance main hustle media and train to recertify so that I could start up the way I'm going to be making money is uh, my travel agency. So just a quick little blip. In the past, I used to book travel as uh, and corporate travel. And I always liked it. I was always really good at it. I always kind of wanted to be a travel agent, but I never tried it. I never tried it legitimately outside of like corporate travel. Um, I also want to move out of the country. I've been talking about that lately. Uh, I would like to do that before I'm in my 50s, or I would like to do that before I can't walk. Um, and so I figured out the best way for me to, one, not work for another person again, because that was the line I drew in the sand last year when I was part of the re great resignation. I want to work for myself. I don't want to work for other people. Um, this is a way that I can do that. I have my own travel agency. It's called Travel by Maine. I am sponsored by, because I have to be, I am sponsored by a parent travel agency called Archer Travel. But I'm not their W-2 employee. I'm a contractor that owns my own business. And every when I book travel, I'm the one who gets paid for that travel. The Archer Travel does not pay me. Um, and because I'm going to be traveling more for both my desire to move out of the country and I need to do some reconnaissance missions, but also for the podcasting, um, I can actually pay myself for traveling if I'm a travel agent. This is how it works. 
for those of you that don't know, you do not book, you do not pay a travel agent. So like if you called me up and you're like, Charmaine, I'm trying to go to Paris. And I'm like, I got you. And I build together a package for you. And you can afford it. And you're like, yep, that's my package. I'm going to pay for it. You don't pay me to do that work. The hotel, the flight, the cruise, the resort, whatever it is, the travel vendor, they're the ones who pay me. So it's in my best interest to get you the most affordable package that works with what you want to do so that you'll pay, so that you'll pay for it. Um, because the vendor is going to have to pay me for getting you to buy that package. Um, so I'm not going to be like a hardcore salesperson. It's pretty much if you want to book travel, you can call me and I'll book your travel because I'm not going to mark it up for, for you to buy travel from me because I can't do that. Um, you're not going to have to pay me a premium because I can't do that because United has to pay me. Disney has to pay me. Marriott has to pay me, etc. So if Charmaine Fury, the podcaster, needs to travel someplace for her podcast, Charmaine, <laughs> the travel agent, can book that travel. And then United or American Airlines or Southwest will have to pay me for booking that trip. Whatever hotel I stay at will have to pay me for booking that trip because I, the travel agent, booked my trip for me. So everything I do always has a double thing. I podcast about race because I'm a race person. I do speaking engagements because I'm a podcaster about mixed race. I podcast about comics and I own a comic book shop. I talk about my comic book shop at my, po my comic book podcast. I talk about my comic book podcast at my comic book shop. I'm about to engage in travel related to moving outside of the country. I'm going to be podcasting about that. I'm going to be traveling, so I might as well be a travel agent so I can book that travel and pay for myself to travel so I can talk about it on my travel podcast. So that's what I got going on. And this will allow me to not have to pay, not have to work for somebody else while working for myself. I can do it part time because I don't need a lot of money. I just need, a, I just need to close the gap a little bit. And ultimately, it's something that I'll enjoy and have fun with. And because I won't be at the comic book shop, I will have time to be a travel agent three hours a day, five days a week, and a podcaster full time. That's the goal. Um, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited and um, I can't wait to actually start pr producing that kind of stuff. I have been posting about, I've been putting together my my website and my Facebook group and all that kind of stuff for my travel agency, but I'm not actually going to be booking until after April because I want to be able to um, finish out what I'm doing at uh, Gulf Coast Cosmos and not like fry myself <laughs> to death with uh, doing too much. So that's all the stuff that's going on in the world of Maine. If you would like to hear more of the emotional side behind my decision, you can listen to the episode that I dropped uh, Monday, if you haven't already. Um, and other than that, you know, you'll hear me talking about it from time to time because it's it's a lot that's going to be happening in the next six weeks until I transition out. I'm sure I'm going to, I'm sure it's going to be an emotional roller coaster because it's, it's a positive decision it's a good thing and yet it's also going to be a little bit sad because I'm leaving something behind that I really love um and I want it to be successful regardless of my presence 
Um, so yeah, I won't be a co-owner of Gulf Coast Cosmos anymore. I will be a customer. <laughs> and so I think that's it. So we talked about Andre. We talked about me transitioning out of Gulf Coast Cosmos. Don't forget, Militantly Mix is a fan-sponsored podcast, and it is with the support of fans, listeners, that we are actually that I'm able to do this at all. Uh, we did recently just get a back up to three hundred dollars a month from Patreon. Um, which is great because it was starting to get really dangerously low for me to be able to afford the show. I do need to get up to $500 to be able to pay for, for Militantly Mix on a monthly basis, but um, right now I'm trying to find other ways to pull that other 200 So if you can help support the show as low as a dollar a month to as high as anything you wish, and there are different reward levels depending on of what you choose. If you would like to watch the video versions of the show, for example, starting with episode 142, you can um, sponsor the show at the $5 a month level, and that will give you access to the video versions of the episodes. Um, this is how I sustain. I, I can't afford to do the show by myself anymore. It's gotten too big for my britches, and, um, and so I do need fan sponsorship until such time as I am able to get external uh, sponsorship. I have recently changed podcast host, which is why there was some delays on episodes recently. And with that change to this new host called Podicize, I should be able to start monetizing the show easier once I'm able to find a sponsor. So that's the next step. I got to try to find sponsors for the show. But in the meantime, um, it is fan sponsorship that helps keep us going. If you'd like to sponsor the show, you can go to patreon.com slash And like I said, as low as a dollar a month, and it actually adds up tremendously. I have a number of dollar a month, two dollar a month, three dollar a month listeners, and then or patrons, and then I have um, I have a fair amount of twenty and fifty dollar sponsors. Um, definitely, without them, the show would not exist. To be honest, um, so yeah, anything that you can do really does help. Alternative to that, you can sponsor the show by dropping some coins in the tip jar at paypal.me slash militantlymix, and that just lets me know that you appreciate what I'm doing here and you want to keep listening, So, and all that money goes back into the main Hustle Media um, bank account. Uh, I still don't pay myself with the show. That's the next step, too. Uh, I did have a cash app, but I told you last week it I can't get back into it. To get customer service, you need to enter your card number. I was never sent a card, which is why I need customer service. So I'm in a loop. I can't get customer service because I need to enter my Cash App card number. I never received a card, so I can't get customer service. Uh, so I don't think Cash App is coming back. And I know I started it because of how many listeners said that they would donate if I had a Cash App. Um, yeah, I... I can't, I can't get in, so I don't know what to do about that. It, it lasted a week, and I haven't been able to get in ever since. Uh, so, yeah, that's the best way, I guess, PayPal and Patreon to sponsor the show. And another way to support the show is just to like, subscribe, write a review. Um, subscribing in particular is a big push right now because, um, as I mentioned last week, we're noticing that my, my downloads and my subscribership don't, don't match up. And so it looks like I have a lot of random listens versus dedicated listeners, uh, which I know is not true because I can see what cities and towns and parts of cities that people download from. So I know that those are repeat locations. It's just a question of how many people actually subscribe to the show. So no matter what podcatcher you're listening to, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, 
iHeartRadio, Pandora. If you can hit that plus sign, that like button, that subscribe button, whatever allows you follow, whatever allows you to get that download automatically, that will actually increase the um, desirability for sponsors to pay for the show versus just um, a show that appears to have a lot of random downloads instead of uh, dedicated listeners. So that helps a lot. Um, also sharing an episode or screen capping that you're listening and posting it on your Instagram. You could tag me in it. I'll tag you back. Um, these are ways that, that actually do help promote the show and get more people to listen because you never know what makes person out there, um, is just waiting to hear their story reflected back at them. Uh, so yeah, that's it. I guess, uh, this was way longer of an intro than I had planned. Um, the dogs are going off again, but I haven't heard sirens in a while, so I'm going to go ahead and keep this one. <laughs> and um, without further ado, please, oh, I guess before I do that, I did not get any additional voicemails this week answering Ivy's question from last week or any additional um, voicemails. So if you would like to leave a voicemail for the show, please do it because I had so much fun. Um, I want this to be a call-in. I want there to be a call-in element so bad. You can go to podinbox.com slash mixed and leave me a voicemail that I can play on the show. Answer the question that Ivy asked last week, which is what is the media that you consume that reflects your mixedness back to you or mixedness in general, just makes you feel represented. Um, or if you have a different question or comment that you would like to leave for the show, please do that. Podinbox.com slash mixed and you record the voicemail directly from the site and it comes to me. Um, but that's it. So without further ado, even though it took 25 minutes, please join me in welcoming our latest cousin to the Militantly Mixed family, Andre Andreas X. Today I am joined by another person that I actually know in Meet Space. This is the second time in the last couple of weeks that I've gotten a chance to speak to someone I actually know in, in the world, like physically, face-to-face. -face. Uh, my guest today is Andre. Andre, why don't you tell everybody about yourself and let's get into it. Alrighty. Hello, everyone. I'm Andre Andres X. I am an author of The Exiled Child, a poetry book that I made. I'm also a podcaster. My podcast name is The Exiled Child. And what else do I do? I'm also a photographer, so you can follow me on Instagram with all that, um, my creative photography there. And I'm also, I don't know if I told you this before, but I'm working on a manga right now. So, oh, yeah? Yeah. So, well, it was going to be a comic book, and then I was like, nah, if I wanted to be an anime, it's got to be a manga. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. That's cool. What's, uh, what's that going to be about? So, ooh, that one's, we could actually talk about it here because they're all, um, they're all like revolutionaries basically mm -hmm. so at the very beginning like arc one this is a secret inside it's like <laughs> well i guess you don't have to if you don't want anybody to accidentally be like inspired by it and write their own thing you could just be like it's a manga about revolutionaries oh, okay well yeah you're right okay well 
I'll just I'll just tell y'all like a little brief synopsis. Okay. Of it. So it's it's this revolutionary who um goes back in time and he time travels a couple places. I won't tell you what years. Um but he time travels a few different places and then he comes back to the future. Um and then he uses like the things that he learned from the past revolutionaries for their um, you know, their current timeline and kind of like has to adapt their tactics. Um, this is like based off of like things that I've thought of before, like reading different revolutions. Like last year I read Malcolm X, I read Huey Newton, I read Osada Shakur. So it was, every time I was reading, I was thinking like, you know, like how can we be free? Like what's going to like, what would work in like our context? Like what, what didn't work back then? What could work now and stuff like that. So, and of course it's, it's a manga slash anime. So like there's going to be some over the top action. There's going to be some powers that I'm planning. Um, so yeah, that's gonna be. I'm excited for it. Like I've already given, I've got the character design done for one of the main characters already. Um, the artist just finished like this weekend, oh, so I'm I'm gonna start sharing that now. So yeah, that's cool. I'm excited for that for you too. Um, why don't you also mention what your mix is? So that, right, I was. I, I already know it. Yeah. And now <laughs> I just realized maybe the audience doesn't know it. Yeah, sorry. Um, so I'm African American and Colombian. Um, so some of my protagonists as well are going to be having a bit of that mix because I want to have more like Afro-Latinx representation in there and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, so my dad is, you know, again, African-American and my mom is Colombian. So she's like the, what we would call like the white Latinx or like the mestizos. Like she's got Mm -hmm. like that mix, but not black. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) You said that like there was some history there, just like, like that side of the family would be like, just to make sure y'all know. Not black. Yeah. <laughs> There's some of that back there on that side. Well, it's mostly for like a lot of like Latinx because a lot of them, again, they're like what we'd call like um, mestizos or like um, mestizex because they're like, there's like a mixture of like, you know, like the Spaniard and like uh, native and indigenous. And some of it's got Afro as well. But a lot of Latinx people just like, we have the issue in like that community where like they'll try to claim like the Afro and it's like you don't even you don't even know what which ancestor of yours has like those roots or some of them will be like well my great great grandfather was black and it's like okay but like you're not well like, you're it doesn't not. mean that they're not it means they're not appearing that way so you can't as- you on the outside of them couldn't assume it but if it's part of their cultural heritage or if if it's part of their ancestry they they can claim it right but it's just like i guess how how should i explain it it's like it's not actually like they've never identified as black if that makes sense like Mm -hmm. before and it's kind of like like for example an issue that we had i think i think it was last month was like i don't do you know the artist jay balvin no so he's like a, a reggaeton artist from colombia he's not black like he's not black and then he won an award for best Afro Latino artist. Oh, I see. So then, like all of us, like the whole community, were like, "Bro, what the heck?" Like, first of all, why? How did you even get nominated when there's so many, you know, black artists that have not been recognized? Right. And then, why did you accept this award, knowing that you're not, you know, Afro Latino? So that was just the whole thing. And then, you know, and then so there was like the white Latinos being like, "Well, you guys are just too sensitive," and like. 
And it was like, it was a whole, I see. it was a whole mess. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, I definitely understand if it's never been a part of somebody's identity, claiming it or claiming it like what was happening a lot in Brazil when they were um, a, a claiming it for scholarships and, and things like that for school. Yeah. And like, that's basically like how it is. Or like here yeah. when someone like claims to be indigenous and it's like, right. it's like, well, I'm 5% Cherokee is like, um, yeah. I mean, for me, like I, I have two of my white sides, I guess I have British whiteness when which I do have some identity related to that because I grew up with my British grandmother, but like on my other side of the family, they are like, um, I Irish, Scottish, Welsh, English people who came here in the 1700s. So predating the U S but like, I don't, they're Appalachian people now, but I don't know them. Like I, I know they exist, but I've never met any of them except for my grandfather. And I only saw him like five times before um, I never saw him again. So I don't have that identity. I'll tell people like some kind of white Appalachian, but I don't have it as part of my identity. And I would never try to claim like Appalachian ancestry, well, a Appalachian cultural heritage in any way, shape or form. But I will acknowledge it as at least part of part of the mix. Um, yeah. But my political identity is black my cultural identity is black and japanese and um my ethnic heritage is black japanese british english mm -hmm. welsh type and yeah. then appalachian mixed white whatever that ends up meaning <laughs> um so yeah i guess I, that makes sense uh we got that going on right now with aquafina getting a was it an naacp award nomination yeah like oh my yeah. god <sighs> yeah and she's super problematic because she like the black scent the black scent for many years that she no longer has now that she's working for marvel um mm -hmm. and claiming that the reason why she had the black scent was because she was from queens but she has a tv show right now called normal from queens in which from what i understand she hasn't dropped her black scent one time in that episode in that show um i've only seen a little bit of it so i don't know for sure for sure but um but yeah i get it when they don't have the any kind of cultural connection to it whatsoever it's that's a lot that's a lot to yeah, and he's already had backlash before because he had like this music video where he was like he was walking black women on a leash and like they were like dogs basically. Mm. And it was, it was yeah. It was... And they were all black women, like not even mm -hmm. an ambiguous one or anything in there. Yeah. So it was like he Yikes. specifically chose to portray black women this way is like and the the other thing that's frustrating too is that like um is that like Reggaeton is is a it's a genre that was started by Afro Latinos like Afro Latinx people, and it has its roots in Panama, um because like well the history with that was like a lot of um, Jamaican immigrants came to Panama to mm -hmm. build the Panama Canal and then they kind of it was like a mix of like like reggae mm -hmm. and then like with you know like American hip hop and then boom here comes reggaeton, but a lot of people don't know that because it's kind of like a lot of genres we have here in America where it's become basically like really whitewashed so like the ogs the og ogs of reggaeton are mostly all black like the the big the big three are all black but you wouldn't know that now because reggaeton if, if someone says reggaeton to you immediately you think of like daddy yankee or like bad bunny or like you know somebody else so it's kind mm -hmm. of gotten to the point where like a lot of people think now that it originated in puerto rico and like they don't recognize like the OGs and like if you try to tell them the history like they don't like really want to mm. they don't really see that so it's kind of frustrating and like 
the Latinx community because it's like they kind of want to act like race doesn't exist or like it doesn't matter. Well, like it totally does. Or like they'll say, oh, we don't have racism in, you know, in Colombia, for example. They'll be like, we have classism. It's like, no, your classism is rooted in racism. Racism, yeah. And a lot so. of classism is. I mean, I guess with the exception of uh, if if nobody ever left Anglo-European <laughs> um, countries, then, then maybe. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's mostly rooted in racism anyway. Um, so we've talked, so just to get back to, to you more, we, we met in my comic book shop. So that's why I know you and meet space and, um, and you've been hanging out there when, when it's not all like scary to hang out there because of COVID. Um, so we got to chopping it up and that's how it came out that you were also mixed. So, um, or maybe Byron learned it before I did and told me about you or something like that. (laughs) And so since then we've been pretty much having mixed conversations all the time. Plus you're really into manga and anime and stuff like that. So we've had those conversations as well. Uh, but you, um, Oh, well, I guess the first time we started talking to you was about your, your poetry book too. And that's kind of also how we found out about you being, um, revolutionary in, in your way that you approach life and everything like that. So why don't you talk a little bit more about like, you as a com- coming into your revolutionariness um and how that how that is affected by your uh ethnic and racial heritage too okay for sure so me being like becoming revolutionary or like i i identify as like a revolutionary minded person um a lot of that started i would say like on my own um, I think I might have told you this before where like I didn't really learn anything from like my own black elders about what it means to be a black man or like a even like a proud black person in general, like just in the world or like in America specifically. Um, that didn't really start for me until I started like learning more about Malcolm X and other revolutionaries. And that kind of got a bit of a late start in that. Um, because you know, like in our schools we don't really learn anything about revolutionaries or like the real things about movements, you know, you get like the watered down Dr. King at most. And then you get like one sentence about the black revolutionaries and any little detail you hear about them is like entirely, you know, they're just vilified, you know, you're like, Oh, like, well, I don't want to learn about them because they're bad people. Right. So it's like, so my first experience with them was, uh, was the Malcolm X movie. Um, I I don't remember exactly how I got to watching. I just think I was flipping through channels, and the very beginning of it, like have you you've seen it, right? The nineteen yeah. I, I mean, I'm contemporary. With, I saw it when it came out. <laughs> right. Oh yeah, you told me that. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So you know, and like the beginning is so like his speech at the very beginning, where he's like, you know, um, basically like indicting like white people in America. Mm-hmm. It's like whole like I can cuss on here, right? Yeah. We're grown. Okay, I was like, holy shit. I was like, damn, like, I was like, I need to sit down and watch this, like, and I watched, like, the whole, like, three hours and 25 minutes, and just from beginning to end, I was just so captivated by his life, and what really got me about him was that, like, he, like, each phase of his life, he had transformed, you know, and, like, he was, like, a different, it's like, a different person, like, he was, like, the most dynamic person that I've ever, that I've ever read, or, like, that I've ever, like, seen. So that was my first introduction to Malcolm X was that movie. So after that, I like I got the autobiography and I started reading and I started like researching more stuff about him. And that made me become more revolutionary because it made me start understanding things from a different perspective. 
because the thing with him was that he saw America for what it really was. And not just America, but like the world. He's like, no, we're living in a nightmare. This is not the American dream. You know, we're, we're not, um, we're not making the progress that we should be making. And the, the, the thing for me was that everything that he was saying was still relevant to this day, despite mm-hmm. it being like, you know, over 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. So I was like, it's like, wow. So like that started my, like my personal journey. And I started getting kind of frustrated with my elders because I was like, how, how have I, how have I just now heard of him? And I think it was barely like in high school, you know, um, that, that yeah, I started learning about him. That, that did surprise me hearing that you hadn't even actually heard of him. Cause there's a lot of people who probably couldn't tell you a single thing that he said, or that even, uh, Martin Luther King said, but at least have like had some awareness of, of them existing. But yeah. yeah, when you told me originally that you hadn't even heard about him until you were in high school, that that was surprising. Uh, you did grow up in kind of a small town, at least smaller than yeah. than where we currently know each other at. But um, uh, I'm assuming also predominantly white school that you grew up in as well. So, yeah, mostly. Yeah. So you're getting black history blurbs, ba- basically, in in the way that you're being educated, and especially because we are in the state of Texas, and anybody who's listening has probably heard by now uh, some of the m- recent moves that the state of Texas has been doing in, in banning a lot of books related to what they think is co- uh, critical race theory. Um, so, like, it's it's not like it came out of nowhere. Obviously, in the past, they've been they had already been um, kind of doing this sort of stuff. So, yeah, that was a pretty surprising to me that you hadn't even actually heard of them. Um, do you remember how far it took you from watching the movie to starting to pick up and read some of the books from the revolutionaries? I think so. Like, as far as reading the other revolutionaries, that did take a little bit more time. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly because it was like just schoolwork and stuff like that in general, but I was still like researching like on my own, right? So mm-hmm. I was like, so like first uh, after the movie, like I researched more about Malcolm X, so I started learning more about him and like his things like that the movie um, wasn't able to include because it was hella long movie. They included as much from the book as they could, yeah. but you know, of course, you can't fit a whole person's life in three and a half hours, especially someone like him. Yeah. Um, so I was still like researching on my own, and then it was kind of like, like, um, it's like a, chain like reaction thing because it was kind of like okay there's malcolm x and then who inspired him and then it was like reading about marcus garvey and then reading about you know like all those movements from before and you know like his own father and stuff like that being inspired by marcus garvey and then it was going forward again because it was like okay who did malcolm x inspire directly and it was the black mm-hmm. panthers so then i was learning about the black panthers and, like their whole movement and like learning about specific panthers and then it was kind of just going from there so Did you cool. recall if you knew about the Black Panthers before you knew about Malcolm X? Yeah, so I think to some degree I'd heard of all of them, but again, it was like a very brief thing. So it's like, oh, Malcolm X, and it was like the only thing you see in like the te- like my history textbook. Like if you go back, to, you know, it mm-hmm. was like, so you get like a whole paragraph on Dr. King's achievements, and then you get like one sentence on Malcolm X. Like, and then there was Malcolm X, this racist extremist who was <laughs> the other side of the coin. And right. and he hated white people, and then he died. Yeah, and then they you are get the really black... pitted against each other in terms of like one is the the good Negro and one is the... right exactly. Yeah. And you know yeah. the crazy thing is like when you read Malcolm X's book, he like he he was like prophetic in the way that he was like he predicted this stuff was gonna happen. It's like when I die, like they're gonna they're gonna vilify me even more, and I'm gonna you know just be some racist demagogue. And then kind of the same with the Panthers. Like you would see like. We saw the same pictures, like in every history book I had, American history book, it was the same. It was Huey Newton in the wicker chair with like mm-hmm. with the with the gun and the spear. 
mm-hmm. or it was him and Bobby Seal like with their shotguns. And it was like, and then there was this racist group called the Panthers and they were violent and militant and they had guns and, and blah, blah, blah. And then they were, they were taken down and it was like, they were taken you know, down. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, you, I mean, you meanwhile, see, like, Bobby Seals was kicking around for a lot forever afterwards. Like, you know, he was, he was, I think at one point even was mayor or ran for mayor. He ran and, for and, mayor. And, like, yeah. um, yeah. And he'd been, he's, he stayed active. Um, so yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, it's all the like negative stuff, but like I started reading more about them because I was when, after reading Malcolm, it helped open my eyes to like, America lies to you, you know, America lies to you and it lies about, you know, the revolutionaries and things like that. Like there's, you know, you start seeing the distorted picture that America paints. Once you start realizing that America is the bad guy, it's like, okay, then you can't trust anything that they're telling you because it's all like imperial propaganda. So I started reading more about the other revolutionaries and started opening my eyes a lot more. And that's kind of where I started clashing a little bit more with like with my family was like I I never really fit in with them to be honest, um, but I started clashing even more because I became like a more militantly minded person, mm-hmm. and they kind of I don't know it was annoying to me especially with my elders and I had conversations with my dad I was like you lived during this time mm-hmm. like you lived during this time you you saw like what was going on like because he was born in 1948 so I'm like you lived through the 60s, like, you were old enough to know what was going on and things like that, but, like, he was the kind of person that he's just never, like, he just simply just did not care, like, and I, and I mean this, like, and I'm not even saying this, like, out of judgment, I'm saying, like, he legit, like, you ask him about certain things, he, like, has, either has no opinion, or he's, like, no. Eh. He's just like, living his life. Yeah, I was, like, how, like, I asked someone else, like outside of the family, like um, like we have a neighbor across the street. Um, she's a little bit older than my dad. I asked her, "Where were you when Dr. King died?" Or like, "How'd you feel?" And you get like a whole like two-hour story. Like I'm sitting mm. down with her and she's telling me what's going on. Or then my dad's first wife, like his, you know, his his first ex-wife. Um, she was like, and and my my thing was that my dad's excuse was like, "Oh well, I was in an even smaller town than this, so I didn't know." But then, like, you ask his first wife, who went to the same school that he did, they were mm-hmm. the same age, like, they knew, they were high school sweethearts, like, they got married. So I'm like, you ask her, and you get a completely different story. Like, mm-hmm. she was so aware. She, t- you know, she, you ask her, like, what happened when Dr. King died? She was like, well, our school was integrated, and they didn't want to lower, like, the flag to, like, honor Dr. King. So mm-hmm. I climbed up the flagpole, and I lowered it myself. Oh, wow. And you're, you're hearing, like, all these amazing stories from, you know, different people from there. But, like, my dad's family, they were just, like, yeah. it just wasn't important to them what about yeah. your your mom's family so growing up um being um being mixed black and um colombian like was there anything in terms of like colombian revolutionaries or um any of their history that you knew about when you were younger or that you're learning about now so I know growing up, my mom's main focus was on just teaching me like Spanish mostly because she was like the only one that like really um, was able to teach me mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, and I learned about the culture from her, but I didn't learn as much history from her. So a lot of the Colombian history that I learned, I had to research myself. Mm. Um, and it got to the point where she was like, you know more Colombian history than I do and like stuff that she never taught me. Mm. Um, but then the other issue that you get, you know, when you're just reading stuff online is that, again, you get like a more like... Um, 
biased, mm-hmm. you know, thing. So it's like when you're learning about like Colombian Revolution, for example, like how they got independence, you learn about Simon Bolivar. Um, and then you learn about, you know, all that happened, like that revolution in Gran Colombia and stuff like that. But then what you don't get is the Afro-Colombian experience and like right. what that was like. So in recent years that I've been on Twitter, I've been meeting a lot more Afro-Latinx and like a, a lot more Afro-Colombians. And they've been able to teach me like the real history or like I've been able to like to learn like the like the facts and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's like it's very similar to here in the American Revolution. It's like we had the American Revolution. Both sides promised things to like to the enslaved black people. It's like, oh, if you fight on our side, we'll set you free. Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, the same thing with like the indigenous people is like, oh, if you fight on our side, like, well, we'll leave you alone. You know, or like, we'll give you rights and stuff like that. It was like the same thing down there, basically, like in Colombia. I was like, um, you don't hear enough about like the the Afro-Colombian revolutionaries who like who helped really, right. you know, really defeat the, the Spanish. And then you also don't hear about Haiti's involvement, Haiti sending troops and Haiti sending support, mm. you know, because like they had just had their revolution. So it's right. like you miss out on all of that, but they only focus on their white savior. The same thing they do here in America. Yeah. You only hear about George Washington and whoever else over there. You only hear about Simon Bolivar. He has a statue over there, like in the Capitol, but you don't hear about like the other revolutionaries who like actually made it happen. Because when you read like the real history of it, Simon Bolivar was like a very incompetent, like, person and he was mm. very selfish and like egotistical so, um, so yeah. is there ways that you find yourself in in all of this uh revolutionary work like uh, like in terms of the way that you identify well let's yeah let's start there how did you identify growing up did you identify as afro-latino did you identify as black and latino like how did you yeah i feel like for most of my life up until like recent years to be honest um, when I like fully, like fully became like a revolutionary minded person, I was always kind of like doing like a back and forth. Mm. So I was that kid that was like, when we would get like a state exam, for example, when it said like, you know, bubble, like what, like what's your ethnicity or whatever. I'd be yeah. like, I'm like, damn, like, okay, well I'm black. But then this has an option where it's like black, not Latino. And I'm like, but I am. So sometimes, you know, just kind of like bubble in the thing. Oh, right. Yeah. And it was kind of difficult at times because it's like, I feel like I never fit in here. Like at least, well, at least not like in my school. Cause again, it was a small town. So people have like a much, you know, smaller mentality on things like very close minded. Cause it like my town only has like three, three main groups. It's either it's white, black, and I would say Hispanic, but it's like most of the population, like 90% is like Mexican. Right. So like, you're 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 very rare if you're from another um, like latin american country that isn't mm-hmm. mexico from like right. in my town yeah um so like for example like a lot of a lot of the kids there didn't know where colombia was mm-hmm. or like i remember we were taking i took native speaker spanish which let me get into that actually because <laughs> because you're it's probably mexican spanish in texas schools yeah, well, the thing was, they were teaching, like, legit, like, like Spanish Spanish. So, oh, I remember... Like from Spain. España Spanish. Kind of, yeah. Okay. But it, I guess it's more of, like, like the, just, like, the proper Spanish. So, I remember... Well, so, this was an example of a mixedness here. So, I remember I was going to take Spanish one, because I just needed an elective. But then it was it was just too easy. So my second day, I told my teacher, like, I need to test out of here because, like, 
Y'all are going to over the ABCs and like mm-hmm. I'm a fluent speaker. Like I, I don't even know why I signed up for this. Like even yeah. though it, you know, so I had to take a test to test out of it, and it's a written exam. So like you have to like you have to read and then you have to respond in like complete sentences, mm-hmm. like to you know test your comprehension. So I passed, and they were like, "You're so good. Like you could go to like Spanish four if you want to. Like you could just jump all the way up, or we could just put you native speakers, which is just like just a level down." I was like, let me just do native speakers, mm-hmm. mainly because, like, my Spanish was limited to my mom. Yeah, right. So it was, like, there were certain things that, like, there were certain words that I couldn't, um, I had to, like, really think about how to spell it out. Or just certain places where, like, does the accent not go here or does it go here? It's little okay, things that, yeah. just, like, little grammatical things that I, I was like, let me go to native speakers and, like, figure all that out better. Yeah. Um, so I went to native speakers. And I remember my first day, I walk into class. Literally, the whole, the whole class is, like, Mexican. So I walk in, and they're all whispering to each other in Spanish, like, what's this black kid doing here? As if you're not in a native Spanish right. class. <laughs> so then the, the the teacher there is like, hey, like, um, um, like I I heard you were the transfer, so you just uh, find a seat, and then we'll, we're going to continue with our class. Here's the book. And I was like, all right, cool. So I was sitting down, and they're also whispering to each other, and I was just kind of ignoring it because it was, like, I've just I've always had that experience like mm. um like back in like fourth or fifth grade I had to take the bus and again it was a bus of like all Mexican people mm-hmm. I'm the only black kid so they're like talking shit and everything I remember one day in the bus and I'm gonna get back to the school story in a second like, I remember one day in the bus they were being like mad rude it's like I finally turned around and I cussed them out in Spanish mm-hmm. the whole bus went quiet <laughs> and I and I thought fuck I'm gonna get jumped and then they were like oh and they all started cheering and then all of a sudden i was everyone's best friend and i was like y'all are fake as fuck (laughs) y'all like like, y'all are so fake so anyway in class um he's you know the teacher's writing on the board and they're going over stuff and this girl like leans over i remember her name um i don't know if i can say yeah i won't um so she leans over she's like what are you doing here i was like I'm here for class, native speakers. I was like, this is native speakers, right? She was like, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I'm I'm in the right place. And then like her and like, she got, goes back to her group, like they're whispering like, okay, but like, how did you get in here? And I was like, I took a test and I'm here. Yeah. And they were like, did you cheat on it? I was like, how the fuck how can you cheat, cheat on, it? Yeah. on a written exam? And you like, you're alone. Like I, I, I remember I took the, I took the test in the hallway of like of my first class so it was like mm. there's no one there to like help you or there's nothing you can look at at the walls and like you know also like, what's the, the move if you test if you cheat to get into the class you're now into a class where people could potentially speak to you and you not understand them so right it's, so it's like a smart move. first how would i test you know yeah exactly it's like she wasn't <laughs> like first how would i cheat on this test secondly why would i put myself in this situation yeah. that you know i could have seen in spanish one so the professor, like, sorry, the teacher starts, like, um, teaching or whatever. And, like, I answer in, like, fluent Spanish. And they're like, ¿Sabes español? And I'm like, how did you think I got in this class? Yeah. Like, and, like, the whole time was that something like that. And the, the ironic thing for me was that when I encounter a lot of um, Latinx people who, who have never heard, like, a black Spanish speaker, it's kind of annoying because it's, like, you know how like when you're black and like a like a white person tells you like oh my god like you're so well spoken yeah it's like the same like thing that. in Spanish yeah but like I feel like it's even a little bit more degrading because it's like oh my god you can actually speak our language it's like yeah because it's our my language, language too versus it's your yeah. our yeah right so 
and is and then and you still get the oh you're so well spoken and the thing was i knew spanish better than a lot of them because my mom taught me like the proper terminology like the proper spanish because mm -hmm. she even to this day we only speak spanish to each other mm. like she like when i was growing up she refused to do like the switching between the english and spanish she's like no if you're gonna speak to me you better speak to me in spanish don't be switching like like mm. don't because then you're gonna you're gonna mix things you're up in your head it, and yeah. then you're gonna you're gonna sound really ignorant like when you when we go to colombia and you start switching words she's like you better like speak speak spanish to me That's i was good. like okay yeah, so it was able, I was able to learn it well. So then when we were in class and we were doing like uh, like vocabulary, for example, they'd be like, what's this word? Like my, like, you know, around me, like the same people who were like, why are you in this class? Are now I mean, going like, to you for advice? Yeah. So like, mm -hmm. I remember, I remember one day, for example, they were like, what's this word? And she like, couldn't even sound it out. I'm like, almuerzo, that's lunch. She's like, no, lunch is lonche. I'm like, girl, no, it ain't. <laughs> no, it ain't. Like, uh, lunch is almuerzo. Yeah. Or like, you know, this is different. So there's a lot of words that like, because, you know, here, like, they have like the Tex-Mex or like, you know, Chicano, like, version yeah. of it. And I'm like, that is not proper Spanish, though. Like, yeah. Like, that's like the slang or whatever, like, and, or like whatever, like, amalgamation you guys made up. But like, that's not like the proper, you know, it's like, you, if you go to that Latin American country, and you say that they're gonna look at you like, girl, what the What's fuck are you talking it? about? Yeah. yeah, yeah, like, or they're gonna think like, this person is so like, don't even talk to me, like you're ignorant, like why are you even using those words? Like that's not even, you know. So in it, in like the whole semester, it was like that, and it got to a point like at the end of the semester, the the teacher was giving like the awards for like the like the highest grade. Mm -hmm. I got the award. The black kid in class got the award. And the like, black no, kid in class who cheated to get in because it couldn't possibly, he couldn't possibly have been speaking Spanish his whole life. Right. So, right. And, so that to me was like, it was just annoying because I, I always felt like othered. And I'm just like going back to your original question of like how to identify. It was hard because for me, it was always like, like a back and forth. Like I didn't fit in with a lot of the black kids here. Mm-hmm. Well, at least like in, not in my town, because again, a lot of people are like a more close-minded. So like a lot of the black kids that I grew up with had like a more, had, like a different mentality of what it meant to be black. Mm -hmm. And uh, I could say that the same for like my family now, like my dad's side of the family, because their idea of being black is like the stereotypical, like you have to listen to hip hop. If you don't listen to hip hop, you're not black. I even would have white kids tell me like, oh, you don't listen to, you haven't heard this song. I'm blacker than you. I'm blacker it's than like, you. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like stupid shit like that. Cause like, you know, so they would think, or like, or like I, I remember we would use, we used to host like, um, like family Christmas parties or whatever. It wasn't even a Christmas party. It was more like for my aunt's birthday. Cause it was on the 24th. But anyway, I remember I had a cousin come up to me one time, this younger cousin. And she was like, you ain't a man if you ain't play football. Cause it's like all my cousins play football. So they were like, they had a very stereotypical mentality of like, well, you have to play sports and the sports have to be track and, or, or basketball or football. Mm. And you have to listen to hip hop and you have to like speak a certain way or whatever to be, to be black. And to them, I wasn't black because I was an academic and the sport I did play was, I was on the swim team. Mm. So I was, I was always seen as weird. So it's like, and it would frustrate me because like the first thing that anybody would ask me at any like, event that we had or whatever with the family it would always be it wasn't how are you doing in school or like just how are you doing in general it was always hey boy what sports do you play mm. and, then, and then as soon as i would say swimming and they'd be like 
black people don't swim and then they'd like walk away and like get disgusted so again it was like a very close like yeah. and like i know that not all black people think like this i'm just saying like in in the context of like my dad's other family in like that small town yeah that's what they thought that's so then thought, yeah. i always felt othered by by the black people there and i felt othered by the by the hispanics that i knew because to them like you're black you're not latino yeah you're not latinx you know so i would like it's kind of weird and then like here, and you weren't around any colombians either really besides the people you were related to so you didn't even get to see what it would like to be like a teenage colombian kid necessarily yeah so the other thing with that was so so then while i was here i felt more colombian right because i was like well, what else can i be like i'm more colombian but then yeah. when we'd go visit there <laughs> you know even though my, my cousins were always very accepting like my family was always very accepting even though i was like the only black one in the family like they my cousins because i would spend whole summers there mm -hmm. so we got to the point we felt like siblings because we'd all be in the same house yeah. you know and like you know my tia and my uncle would, would feel like my second parents when i was there so we felt close but i still felt othered to a degree because there were certain you know like when you live somewhere you pick up on on their slang right mm -hmm. you pick up on like certain things or like the history or whatever but like i wasn't raised there so you know there were certain things that they would say that like i like i, I like how oh, i didn't catch that like i didn't yeah. really fully realize it so i was whenever i'd go there i feel like like i'm the american cousin yeah i wasn't you know a fellow colombian if that makes sense you right, know right, like yeah. i you know so it's like and the last time i went there was 2016 so i remember even at that time when i was still here like i felt like i still felt kind of othered even though i was in university at the time and then i went to colombia and it was kind of like the same thing like i was like i'm the american cousin so then i kind of like i think that was one of the last times i had like a bit of a, like an identity not a, like identity crisis but i was kind of thinking like damn like i just don't really fit in like in either world yeah so I would say like in like it took more like time like me like thinking and also it helped that I met more um more Afro-Colombian or Afro-Latinx people that I started mm -hmm. to understand more of like kind of coming into my own identity. Mm -hmm. So now it's like um I see myself as either like so I guess I identify as like I am black or I was I'm like I'm Afro-Latinx. Okay. So like basically after that trip to Colombia I'm like I'm Afro Latinx like that's that's what I am like I am Afro and I am Latinx and like I am both like I'm of both worlds yeah. and at the same time I still felt like I'm part of neither but meeting more Afro Latinx I started to like feel like no like I we do have a community like they're like there are more people like me and like it helps to like meet them and like understand mm -hmm. like what that means because a lot of them it's kind of like here right so it's like we can say like we're African American but like america others us so much that we have no like we, we don't really have like the national pride you know mm -hmm. right yeah the, not a patriotism yeah. related to our african-american-ness right and yeah. like i realize this is the same for a lot of them they're like like i'm colombian but like i'm not like a proud colombian because like you know they have the same they had slavery yeah. there they had you know racist laws as well they still do mm -hmm. did you know that in, in colombia they didn't recognize their black like population until 1993 Oh wow, that's way like late. in the in the census, like like they didn't they didn't count them. Oh, I see what you're saying. So like before that, it was just everybody was Colombian. They weren't necessarily on paper written down by their racial categories. I I believe it was either that or they just didn't like it was it was super weird. Like they were they did citizens not, at least. Yeah, like they were citizens, okay. but it's like the census just didn't 
didn't acknowledge the racial categories. Yeah, mm-hmm. so this is like with things like that that you know, I felt like I could relate to them even more because I was like, wow, so like we just like it's kind of like like we are black in our nations, but we are not you know right proud of like this nationality. Do you experience a difference when you meet Afro-Latin people that are uh, born and raised in Latin America versus like black and Latine mixed here in the states type of do you, do you uh, experience that at all like a like a like a like, difference between them like, or like how they treat me you, no yeah well like a difference in terms of the identity so you said like meeting more afro latine people you started to to see yourself a little bit more do you see do you experience any difference if you even encounter people like this do you experience any difference from afro latine people in latin that are from latin america versus people who identify as Afro-Latine here in the States, like maybe grew up here, but, but have a Afro-Latine his, uh, yeah, background. ethnicity and background. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, no, like they've all been like pretty much the same. Like really? a lot of them. Yeah. So like the community I've met, I met most of them on Twitter. So a lot of them, some of them grew up here mm-hmm. or some of them were born there. And then like, you know, they're spent most of their lives here. And some of them I've met, like, they're still in, in Colombia mm-hmm. or in their, like, in their respective countries. But, like, I think it's helped that I, I can't say this for everybody, but a lot of the ones that I've met have, like, the same mentality that I do. Like, they're all, they're also revolutionary minded or, like, they're okay. all, like, they're all, like, woke and aware. They're, like, okay, like, the country, like, that we're from, like, you know, our motherland or whatever, you know, you want to call it is, like, you know, they're, they're kind of aware that, like, I don't feel like a citizen here. Mm-hmm. So they kind of, like we're all kind of on the same page. Like at least the ones that I've met, we've Mm -hmm. all been on the same page. So like, it hasn't made a difference whether like they're still in Colombia and like they haven't left the country or if I met them here in the U S like we're all kind of like, I haven't really seen much of a difference. Like they still, they still recognize like, yes, I am Colombian, but like I'm, I'm a black Colombian. I see. So, Um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you have found, so like, it seems to me, especially from knowing you two um, in the shop and everything like that, like, it's not just enough to identify as black and Colombian or black or Colombian or Afro Latine or anything like that. It's, it's also the revolutionary piece for you. Like that is, that's the community that you need to build or that's the community that you need to be around um, for you to really see yourself and and feel yourself. Um, You started, so, it's hard to talk to you when, like, I already know some of the answers to the questions and, like, answering, asking you questions for the sake of the show. Um, so, like, you started your book, your book of poetry, because you were already doing, you were already writing poems and things like that. And someone had kind of suggested to you, like, maybe you should compile them and put them in the book. But your poetry writing, like, enhances or or is how you process a lot of your revolutionary ideas, right? Like, that's how you work out some of the things that you're thinking about, uh, which is what led you to, to writing your book or to compiling your book and everything as well. Right. Um, so compared to how you were when you got started versus where you feel you are when you're writing now, what is all being included in, in the work that you you're doing for your poetry? Is it, is it race? Is it identity? Is it politics? Like how, how do you, how is your process now? Um, so like my process now, like whenever I write poetry, um, it, I think it kind of depends on, sometimes it depends on my mood or like just what, like the topic 
specifically that I want to write about. Because, like, for example, my poetry book is split into three parts. So it's, you know, the first parts are, like, just Black life in America in general. So a lot of that does have, like, history or, like, revolutionary elements to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and just my own experience. And the other part is, like, my, like, it's, like, a mental health section. So it's not, it's not as much about, like, being Black in the world. It's more of, like, just an individual going through, like, depression or anxiety. Mm-hmm. And then the last part, like, talks about, like, love and stuff like that. Um, so now when I write, it's, it's still kind of, um, it's still kind of a mix at times. Um, but I have found myself writing more on like on the revolutionary, uh, like on the more like the revolutionary side, like the more like black history, um, just because like different things are going on and yeah, like I have some poems that I, I haven't fully written out yet, but like I have a lot of them planned of mm-hmm. like what I'm going to write about. And a lot of them are like on that topic of you know, being black and like revolutionary. Um, there is, there's a poem that I wrote in my, in my first book. And I kind of want to like, it's weird. Cause like, I kind of want to write like a follow-up to it, but it's more of like, it's almost like a, a, something I would read before I read that one. Mm-hmm. Um, so to make sense of it, I'll kind of explain the poem that I'm talking about is called death parade. And I, I, I read it to you in the shop actually. Mm-hmm. It's the one that's about lynching. And the poem that I'm thinking about, like writing as a like a or like a prologue to it or something, would be like that. I've noticed that a lot of people, for example, who aren't revolutionary, because you know, as a revolutionary person, we follow more of like Malcolm X's track of like nobody can give you freedom, like you have to take it. Mm-hmm. So my prologue would be kind of more of like it's disturbing to me that there's like two sides of this coin and like both sides are wrong of like of this mentality that I'm about to say. So it's like one side, if like if the devil was like was here like in person, they would find some way to like sympathize with like for the devil basically, and that'd be like, you know, like oh like maybe he's not all bad, like you know he's just been going through a hard time, and like let, let's pray for him, let's pray for the devil because like that's let's feel like that's what they do like in real life, mm. and the other side of it that's i don't know if it's equally as disturbing or more disturbing is the fact that they would want sympathy from the devil so if one side wants sympathy mm. for the devil the other side would want sympathy from the devil mm. it's like so it's like to me it's like the same person or being or whatever you want to say entity that's causing you all this pain and affliction that you talk about you expect that in seeing your suffering and and, and you pleading directly to it that it would suddenly stop and just suddenly grow a conscience and be like oh my god i didn't realize i was hurting you i'm sorry because no like it feeds off of your pain and your suffering it like it's doing it intentionally on purpose my thing with that with saying you know especially with the devil and things like that is because i think a lot of christians you know see it like that like or you know whatever and that they like i don't know it's like they they want to i don't know like it's like you what I'm getting at is like when you see like these things like in real life, like in person, like we have seen evil incarnate in so many ways. And it still bothers me that we still think that we can just beg and plead for these people to, you know, like, oh, if we just give them like a, a good moral argument, then they're going to stop. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, like because they're they're taking joy from this. So when I wrote Death Parade, mm-hmm. it was to really show what lynching was. You know, it wasn't about, um, it wasn't about, like, just showing black trauma just to show it. It was to show, like, no, like, this is what lynching is. They didn't simply hang a person. They would torture you 
and then hang you and then continue to mutilate your body or use it in some way and even keep it as a souvenir. Mm-hmm. And they would bring kids. They would bring children. They have yeah, postcards. You know, so my thing with that is like, I know that a, some, I realize that some black people don't feel the need to read my book because they're like, well, well it's black history and I'm black and I already know this stuff. And it's like, mm-hmm. there are certain things that I think we really need to like sit and look at and I just lynching specifically because I'm like, it's terrible that it even happened to one of us, like to mm-hmm. one person. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it happened to thousands of us yeah, over the span of decades, a century. And continues to happen. And continues to happen. And my thing is that I just want people to understand, like, you can't just come up with some moral argument and ask these people to kindly stop. Because when you like when you read that poem, because I it's based off of like a real a real case. And it's one of the one of the lynchings that was like one of the most horrific that I had read. Mm-hmm. And like, I kind of wrote like in detail, like how these things would happen. And like, it's just like the joy that it gave the crowd. Yeah. Like, the pleasure that they get from it. So it's like, do you think that you can just walk up to one of these people and just be like, Hey, like, that's really mean. Like you should really stop because like this person is like begging and pleading for their lives. Like they're suffering, they're in agony. And there's no sympathy. Like, it makes them even happier to do it. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of my thing where it's like, you need to stop asking for sympathy from the devils that you know and expect change in that way, you know? Mm -hmm. I see. I understand. Uh, We are coming to the end. I mean, this stuff goes by real fast. We are coming to the end of the show. So even with all that, with all the the difficult aspects of of like our racial identity and um, cultural identity and everything like that. What is something that you love most about being a mixed person? I think what I love most is that like, I get the best of, um, I sort of like, I get the best of both worlds. Oh no, you said it. (laughs) (laughs) I had to, (laughs) no, but like, no, but what I mean for real is that like, no, 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 but like my, uh, I just had to. (laughs) I just had to throw in the stereotypical. Mm. <laughs> no, but like what I know, but for real, what I really like is that um, I know that my Colombian side doesn't have like, um, at least not that I know of. I haven't had like an Afro Colombian side, but I still like seeing our resilience, you know, throughout like on like on both sides, if that makes sense. Like you know, being African-American, I'm proud of like um, our movements and our revolutionaries and stuff like that. So mm. now I'm like. I can also identify with the Colombian revolutionaries as well. Mm-hmm. And the activists that are here, like um, the activists that are here and the activists that are over there, like we're fighting the same fight basically just on different continents, but it's the same fight. There's police brutality over there, police brutality here, mm-hmm. there's racist governments and things like that. And what I love as well is like the food, like the culture, like we know here in America, like we, like we're the staple for like all, like a lot of the food that we have, like, especially like Southern food, like, mm-hmm. like that's our stuff. Like the, the music, like, Almost every genre you can name, like, we've started it here. Mm-hmm. Same thing, in, like, in Latin America. It's just, like, a lot of the food, like, that's – a lot of it's, like, black food. Like, a lot of stuff that, that like, we made. The music, it's like, like, salsa, cumbia, like, all that stuff. Like, that was, like, Afro-Latinx people starting that stuff. Like, reggaeton, like – so it's, like, it gives me pride to know that, like, we've, we've been influencing the culture. As much as they try to put us down, you know, throughout, you know, throughout the Americas – we've been able to elevate the culture mm-hmm. and we've been able to like make you know our own 
like my like our own marks like in these countries like whether they want to acknowledge it or not like we know like that we started this like we did this and it's mm -hmm. kind of like it's just like great to see that and again like i i don't know like it gives me pride to like to know that like we've gotten so much done despite everything that they've done to like hold us back so mm. yeah and why don't you tell everybody how to get your book have access to your book and follow you on social media Okay, so the easiest way would be like on Twitter. You can follow, oh, sorry, not on Twitter. I don't give up my Twitter. <laughs> I'll be wilding <laughs> on there. Um, <laughs> my Instagram, my Instagram has all my photo concepts and it also has my link tree. So you can follow me on Instagram at Andre underscore Andres underscore X. Um, and then you can also find that book like online everywhere that you can buy a book. So like on Amazon.com, on Barnes and Nobles, like you can look for it there. It's called The Exiled Child by Andre Andres X. And again, if you go on my Instagram, you can see it in the link tree. It also has links to my podcast. So you can get my podcast, which is available anywhere. You can stream your podcast. So it's the X hyphen communicated. So it's my own like revolutionary podcast. I talk about revolutionary thoughts and like protest tips and um, black history related things and stuff like that. Okay. Well, thank you for joining me on the show. Um, I know this is like our second attempt at it and we've, we've <laughs> kind of had some of these conversations multiple times. So thank you for going through it with me again. And, yeah, no, um, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. No problem. <laughs> and don't forget to just be your mixed ass self out there. All right. Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Fury. Music is by David Bogan, the one. You can follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Militantly Mixed. If you'd like to become a sponsor of Militantly Mixed, please go to patreon.com slash militantlymixed for monthly sponsorship or paypal.me slash militantlymixed for a one-time only donation. And if you like what you hear on Militantly Mixed, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to be your mixed-ass self. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.